Welcome to Regeneration if you're visiting. Uh, if you have any questions about our ministry or what goes on here, uh, feel free to ask anybody you saw serving in that four-year area or anybody up here on stage, and uh, we'll try to get those answers to your questions. Philippians chapter 4, that's where we're at. We're going to go through verses 1 through 9. In the, pre- in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, Paul reminds the Philippian church that their citizenship is in heaven. And he encourages them to eagerly wait for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he tells them that um, you guys are going to get transformed bodies as well, which sounds better and better as I get older and older. And that they have something forward uh, to look forward to. And, and as we resume looking into Paul's letter to the Philippians, as we are tonight, we're going to go, um, we're going to continue seeing Paul's love for this church. And here we have this man who deeply cared for this Philippian church, and you can see it by how he writes to them. And so notice how in, in verse one, how he writes to them, how he addresses them. He says, therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. My beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown. Paul loves them and he wants to be with them and they're cherished by him. He's, he's proud of them and he sees how they act and he's touched by their love for God, their love for him because this is a church that continues to support him even though he's in prison and their love for one another. And notice how Paul is telling the church in Philippi to stand fast. And this is important because the, thing, um, the things he's going to talk about are are in relation to standing fast in the Lord, standing fast in God. And this phrase, stand fast, comes up numerous times in the New Testament. And the context is usually around um, being a mature follower of Jesus. To stand fast is a sign of maturity in someone who follows Jesus. And standing fast is, is a posture that that has a military connotation to it, it, to stand firm, to establish and uphold your position. And so it isn't so much an offensive posture as much as it is a defensive posture of being immovable, where, where you've taken your, your stance and you're standing ready and you're not wavering in your position. And something to keep in mind about keeping your position is that there are things involved to stand fast, right? There's patience, there's diligence, there's persistence. And there's training, there's discipline, there's effort, there's time. And in the next few verses, Paul's going to give us examples of how to stand fast. The first one's in verse 2. I implore Euodia and implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Keep in mind that this letter is being carried over to the Philippians. And when it arrives, people are, are summoned to listen to what Paul has written to them. Right? So... Also keep in mind that Yodia and Syntyche are probably one of those folks that are summoned to this letter reading as well. And so they have this well-known dispute amongst them. And so they probably come, but they sit on opposite sides of the church. Right? Or one sits upstairs and one sits downstairs. Or if there are two services, one's in the morning and one's in the evening. And they have this large enough spat that Paul hears about it. And he has to address it in this letter. Now imagine being there while this letter is being read, because it's going to be read aloud. Most of the people there could not read. So you would have this reader and and you are out there in the vicinity and those people are out there with you that are having this well-known dispute. And they're being called out by Paul in this letter. So imagine if you were a Euodia or Syntyche while this letter is being read. How would you feel? 
What would you be thinking? And this letter is being read aloud for everyone to hear. And you're like, oh, why is he telling everyone? It's not, not like everyone didn't know already. I mean, he heard it from prison. So when Yodia's name is being read aloud, people might be looking over at her and like, hey, they're right there. Or when Syntyche's name is being read aloud, people might pretend that she's not there. You know how you kind of ignore even though you know someone's there? Like, and she's right there. And what this verse is all about is unity. This verse is about unity, standing fast in unity. And to remember that the common ground that we have is in Jesus. See, we, we sometimes focus on, on just these small things that we deal with when, you know, we, we need to focus on Jesus. And this dispute seems to be well known and Paul feels the need to address it publicly. And not much has changed from the church back then to the church nowadays. Unity has always been a problem in the church. And people not getting along has always been present in the church. And I think if there was a major theological issue here, like if Syntyche and Yodia had this major theological uh, scuffle with each other, Paul would have pointed it out. He would have made sure that there was a right theological stance on something, but he doesn't. So it seems to be something that they just need to get over whether it's just like a clash of personalities or some past disagreement or liking the same guy or I don't know. Paul is encouraging them to be agreeable, to be like-minded, to get along with each other. And imagine if they heeded Paul's instructions in chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4 of Philippians, where it, re- where it reads, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What if they put that to work? What if they put one another first instead of just trying to be right? And how how we can learn from Paul's instructions to the Philippian church here to stand fast in unity and the, the disagreements then that we have to find common ground in Jesus, no matter what things get thrown our way to cause division, if we can commit to sticking together and not just not sweating the small stuff. And do you know what is really damaging to the church? When we can't get along, when Christians can't get along, if we if we who have Jesus can't be in unity What hope is there for those outside of Jesus? There is no hope. Right? So maybe we need to direct our differences to Jesus and focus not so much on ourselves, but on others. As in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, and this is not to say that we don't address conflict. We, you know, we have to address conflict. And so Paul gives a suggestion as to how to handle this conflict in verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is encouraging someone mature in their faith to help resolve this dispute, to help reconcile the differences between these two women. I think the best way to, to deal with conflict is to deal with this on an individual basis, dealing with it one-on-one with the person you have a problem with. To look for the other person's best interest as you're having this discussion with them. But in this case, Paul recognizes that this isn't happening. So he encourages someone else, someone more mature in the faith, to bring about a peaceful solution to this dispute. And in our church, we have we've had people leave because they didn't agree with how things were handled here. Um, regarding how things were handled in terms of disputes, even. 
And, but I think many of those who left, they, they left without knowing the complete truth. And I think we often jump to conclusions without knowing the complete truth. And often we kind of side with who, whoever came to us first or whoever we're closer with. Um, and we, we have these different biases. And instead of hearing the different sides of the story, because there are always different sides to the story. We sometimes tend to go with who we hear from first or what we hear first or or with what we're more comfortable with. But you know, we need to seek truth, not to be partial to somebody or somebody's story or or, or their position or anything like that or anything like that. Friendship. We need to act on truth and we act on that truth with love and we act on it with grace. And in verse four, it says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing is a main theme in Philippians. And even though Paul is in prison, he's encouraging the Philippians to rejoice. Paul, Paul knows that joy is from the Lord. And, and he reminds them to rejoice because they have a relationship with God. Rejoice in the Lord always, not in other things, but in the Lord. Not when things are good. Always. Rejoicing always. See, circumstances don't dictate joy. Or they shouldn't. Oftentimes we let it, but our relationship with God is what dictates joy. Not, not what we eat or drink or wear or drive or where we live um, or went to school. And some people think that if they just get the right education, that they'll be joyful. Because if they get the right education, then they'll get the right job and that'll give them joy. That's simply not true. I, I worked in the investment management business uh, industry before I was here. Um, on that floor, there were over 70 folks that worked in, in investments and most well, no, all of them smarter than me. Um, all of them going to really prestigious MBA programs and all this stuff. Do you know how many of them were married to their original spouse? Two. It was like 70. Now, not all, not all 70 were married. I mean, probably at least half of them or a third, but still two. So it doesn't guarantee you joy because you get the education and you get the job. Those portfolio managers and investment analysts still struggle just like everybody else. And and then some people think that um, relationships will give them joy. If I would only get married, I'd be so happy. Really? For me, yes. I don't know. But, <laughs> but you... um. You, you, you get the picture like you, you, you can't depend on this person. So some people think that, you know, oh, if I just have children, I'll be so fulfilled and I'll be filled with joy. That's not true. Right. Some of you that have teenagers already. So it, the joy is from God. God provides us with joy. It's not these like people and stuff and maybe short lived things, because I got to tell you the truth. When my kids were born, that was a pretty joyous occasion. But but to uh, to rely on people to provide that to you, that's short lived. Like that, That's not forever. A lot of things come into that. And are we followers of Christ looking to things other than God to give us joy? Are we depending on people like our spouses or future spouses or our children or future children or friends to provide us with joy? And how can that be? How can that be um, when only God is perfect? 
You see, the rest of us are imperfect. How can we be looking for joy from imperfection when we know that God is perfect? And many of us are pressing toward perfection, but we're not there yet, right? Just like in last week's message. See, God provides us with joy. And, and let's not confuse joy with happiness. So you can have joy even when you're not happy. See, when everything looks grim in your life and everything looks bad, you can still have joy in the Lord that's within you. And, you know, you look at Paul. He was locked up in prison, right? But he still encourages others to rejoice in the Lord. And it's not to say that we don't rely on community to support us and to um, uh, encourage us to be joyful and happy. We do. Community is really important in that. But we can't look at that as the main uh, thing that provides that to us. We need to look to God. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The word gentleness is speaking about fairness, about moderation, about goodwill. And he's telling them that no matter what difficulties they're going through or, or what bad circumstances that they find themselves in, to remain fair, to remain good, to remain impartial. Don't let that stuff harden you. Don't let that stuff sway you in how you treat people. And... There was this couple celebrating their 50th anniversary and a genie appeared to them. And uh, so they're, they're both 70 years old. And the genie asked the wife what she'd like uh, for, for being married to this guy all these faithful years. Uh, what wish would you like? And she said, well, I'd like to travel the world with, with my husband. So the genie granted that wish. And then the genie turns to the husband and asks the same question. And then so he replies, I'd like to travel the world with a woman 30 years younger. So the genie made him 100 years old. <laughs> you let your gentleness be known to all men. You don't change, right? Don't let things sway you. And, and to let our testimony to be consistent with being a follower of Jesus. And there's this phrase, the Lord is at hand. I love this phrase because it's reminding us that Jesus is right here. That Jesus is right now. You don't have to wait and die to be in the presence of Jesus. He's here and now. He's not later and he's far away. He's available to us right now. He's among us. And yes, Jesus is coming back again in a more visible form, in a more tangible form. But I, and I really look forward to that. But that doesn't mean that we're impotent in being Christ-like now. You can be. He provides the Holy Spirit that fills you. You have the Bible that you can refer to to look at him and, and you have his life and you, you know that he died for your sins. You know that he raised from the dead so that you can have a regenerated life and moving forward, you're, you're a different person. Verse six is be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul encourages us to stand fast in prayer and supplication. Now, what's prayer? Prayer is simply communication with God. That's it. Nothing complicated. And supplication is an appeal to God. When, when we pray to God to grant a request, that's an example of supplication. So a way to stand fast against anxiety's attack, against anxiety's offensive front to us, is to pray. And supplication is, is part of that prayer. To ask God to do something by, by making our requests known to God. And Paul tells us to be anxious for nothing, meaning to be troubled uh, with cares. You know, don't don't be troubled with cares or don't be in distress. Paul is encouraging us not to be anxious or troubled. Don't be caught up with what is troubling you, troubling you. And don't let those things preoccupy you to the extent that you forget to go to God. 
we're to go to God in prayer and trust in God, not in ourselves. And so often we, we rely on ourselves when things go bad, don't we? Like, like at work, when people don't, think, don't do things that we want them to do, you, you kind of take it on yourself again. Oh, this can't get done unless I, get, unless I do it. And oftentimes we're that way with God, too. You know, oh, God's not doing this, so I'm going to take control of this and put it in my own hands. I'm going to act on this stuff instead of praying before God and laying it right before his feet. And we, we start to think that if anything is going to be made right, we have to do it on our own. But we are to rely on God. What does it say about our relationship with God if, if we're in constant anxiety, if we're in constant trouble? Doesn't that say that God isn't big enough to take care of our problems? That you don't trust that that's going to be taken care of by Him? And, isn't, and, and this isn't saying that we aren't to care for people or to be concerned for them or to worry about them. Any of us that have kids, we do, right? It's natural. That shows our love for people. That shows our love that we care for them, that we're concerned, that we're worried. But it's not to be consuming to us and, and to take our focus off of God. See, God is our deliverer. And if we're just consumed with anxiety over people, what does that say about our faith in God being this lovely deliverer? So let God be God. That's not our place. And what good does anxiety really do anyway? Think about it. Just festers right inside of you and in your head and it grows greater into a greater insecurity, into a greater fear, and into a greater uncertainty. What is good about that? It's no good in that. It's not a constructive way to deal with our problems. The constructive thing to do is you bring it to God. And we're often anxious about things we don't have any control over. And we forget that God is in control. So bring it before him and you don't have to be troubled with it anymore. And being anxious about things is just a bad practice. It's a waste of time. It's bad for your health. To constantly put yourself through fear, put yourself through anxiety, and it's bad for your relationships with others. Right? Who wants to be around a grump or a worry wart? Right? Who likes to be around anxious people? Don't anxious people make you feel uneasy? Don't they make you feel like, oh, no, here they come again. They're going to ask me to do something for them or they're going to ask me for a favor or whatever. And then and as far as your health, it's, it's not good. Putting yourself through all that. It's not good for your mental health. It's not good for your physical health. Some people are just paralyzed, but they can't do anything anymore. And it's not that Paul is saying, don't worry about it and forget about it. Paul is giving us an action step and to do something about it. He's saying, pray. Pray. Anxiety will be there. We all go through it. Anyone um, who's married, anyone who has kids, anyone who's in school, anyone who has a job, you, you all experience it some way or another. And having anxiety is natural. And it's part of being human. But, but what do we do with it? How do we channel the anxiety? Do we direct it on ourselves or, or, or direct it towards God? Do we direct it to myself, who I'm, I'm finite, I only know so much, right? And I only know so much in terms of how I can solve a problem. But God, he's infinite in wisdom. God can see, see it all. And it's not that we have no hope to deal with our anxiety. We have hope. 
We have God and we can overcome it. We can pray. We can pray to God who is in control and learn more about him and how faithful and loving he is to us. And we can live free of anxiety if we know who God is and that he is in control of all the stuff that is happening around us. Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, the psalmist writes, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 61, verses 1 through 4. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher higher than than I. See, when, when troubles are coming like a flood, right? And they've just overtaken you when you're drowning in your distress, saying, God, lead me to a place that's higher than I. Lead me to a place that's not affected by that flood. Where I can see my troubles from a proper perspective. Where, where God has put you in a place where you can see them for what they really are. Where, where you can see that God is in control of that stuff. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a rep- refuge for us. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart. God is big enough to handle all of your problems. Whatever you're going through doesn't surprise God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He can handle whatever is happening in your life. And do you see the assurance, the peace, the security in that? That you can cast all your cares on Him because He is able to take that on. He's able to see the bigger picture and see what's going to happen later on. And notice that Paul doesn't go into what to pray for and not to pray for. He simply says to let your request be made known to God. Let him know what you need. Prayer is simply communication with God, right? And there are so many things to point out regarding prayer. So this message um, is not going to be sufficient to cover the topic of prayer. But I just want to point out just one thing about prayer that hopefully is going to be helpful to you in your prayer life. And it's found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. According to His will. See, we only know so much, right? We have a limited knowledge of the greater picture. And isn't it most wise to submit our will to God's will? Since He's all-knowing. So by yielding our desire to a loving God who knows infinitely more than we do is just wise. God knows everything. Why wouldn't you want his will in your life as opposed to our limited knowledge of the things that are in front of us? And, you know, a year ago, um, we went through a tough transition here. And um, so last week I was at this conference and um, people knew what we were going through here. and they, They were asking me this question like, so how are you doing? Are you uh, are you stressed? Are you how are you dealing with stuff? Are you full of burden or, you know, do you have anxiety? And then I was at this fundraiser last night and uh, around some friends. And one of the questions that a friend asked me was the same one, like, how are you dealing or how was this past year um, treating you and all this stuff? To tell you the truth, I've not been anxious about it once. I've not felt the burden through it once. I have no stress about the thing. I couldn't do anything about it anyway. Right? I don't have control over that stuff. I had to leave it to God. There's nothing I could do. The only thing I could do is pray. 
So it was it did me no good to have an anxiety. I all I could do was pray. And and God tested it. God tested us. God tested our board, God tested uh, me personally cuz you know that that month that that happened um the finances basically ran dry. That month it was like the lowest giving in the history of region. So we were wondering like are we going to be around or is this it? And then leadership was disappearing, like people were taken off and for whatever reasons and we didn't have the support structure and we we're just wondering what is happening? Is this it? The years of investment that uh my family has put into this place and you guys have put into this place is that it? And the only thing I could do was pray and I wasn't praying um for God to get something from you guys. I wasn't saying like, "Oh God, give us more leadership or take our leadership or God uh give us more money or have the people give us more money." I I was praying for you guys. I was praying that God would give us an opportunity to make him shine, to glorify him through this situation, to uh to give you guys opportunity to bless this community that we've invested in and and he's blessed it. And uh in terms of financial stability, it's it's more than ever before and I have to thank you guys for your generosity towards supporting the ministry here. And in terms of locally what we've been doing and globally what we've been doing and and uh, finances are just a small part of that but thank you for that part and thank you for your prayers and thank you for uh being so faithful in supporting the ministries that have been going on here God's incredible it was all through prayer it wasn't through like us trying to manipulate a situation or saying like oh we need to bring in these consultants or we need to figure out why our tithe is getting lower or why our ministries are this or that or anything all we did was we, the the first week when we came back it was like all right we we need to be still and know that God is God that's it and we prayed and we created these prayer groups these support groups and we prayed that's what we did for month or two that's it we didn't do any like these action things or anything like that and the very next month it was the highest giving of ever ever in the history of region and then now looking back at it um at the ministries that are happening here it's incredible i i wish i had time to go through everything and tell you guys what is happening um from from the the background stuff to uh what's happening like on the more upfront stuff like these missions and things but like this community center project that's exciting and having our architect look at it and phasing that out and seeing seeing how we're going to uh, affect the community in a positive way and and uh just at the at the baptism yesterday a whole family um was sharing their story and they're in my taekwondo class i had no idea that they weren't even christians and they started coming to church and and she shared that she had no no background in church and she came through the lord um by her kids being in taekwondo class i had no idea i had none and then so and then they they both shared the married couple shared the kids didn't share but the married couple shared that you know their marriage has never been better that their relationship with their kids has never been better like You have no idea how your generosity in in time and your efforts and your giftings and your money all that stuff is going to work here. Now, now out of all out of all of the things Paul could have mentioned in terms of the type of attitude we have in prayer, he mentions only one thing in verse 6. 
He instructs us to pray with thanksgiving. To have a heart of thanksgiving. And this describes our spirit when we pray. Is our spirit thankful? Are we thankful to God? I think this points out how a mature Christ follower prays. How a mature Christ follower stands fast in prayer, and that's by being thankful. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to a vile passion, or gave them up to vile passions. Paul has an understanding that when we remove thanksgiving from our posture in prayer, we're giving up ground. We're not standing fast anymore. We're we're no longer standing fast and we start moving into sin and and compromising our position. See, by being thankful, it helps us um, to stand fast because it requires us to remember. It requires us to acknowledge, to remember and acknowledge the things that God has done, the things that God is doing and the things that God will be doing. Being thankful is a huge part of standing fast. Verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The result of prayer is peace. I can totally attest to that from this past year. If you want an antidote to anxiety, you pray. You pray. Anxiety is often due to feeling that you have no control over what is causing you to be anxious. So So you have to give it to the one who does have control. It's God. Another person that was sharing their testimony at the picnic was this person that came to the Lord just this past year. And she had she's not read much of the Bible. or She's a brand new Christian. And so she came to me. And it was after the morning service. And she said, you know, I was going through all this anxiety yesterday. And I, I decided to pray. And I felt total peace after that. And then she said, and then you went over that in the passage. And now I understand why. She never read Philippians chapter 4. Not yet, at least. But, see, those things are true. And and she came up to me to share with me her story about what she was going through and when she prayed, how all of that dropped and she she had peace. See, by communicating with God and asking Him to grant your requests, He'll give you that peace that you don't understand, that you don't quite understand. She didn't know why. She had no idea why. She didn't even know that she was supposed to do that. And not that it's a senseless, right, Not that it's senseless and that it's impossible to understand, but that it's beyond our ability to understand. It's beyond our ability to explain. And it's something that has to be experienced, but it's a peace that will deliver you from anxiety, just like it did her. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And this is also a military type term, like standing fast. It's to prevent a hostile invasion or a hostile takeover through the protection of like a military guard. So the peace of God is on guard over your heart and your mind. You know when people lose heart and they lose their mind? It's often because they have no peace. 
And without peace, there's no guard keeping over your heart, keeping over your mind and and keeping that intact. You're susceptible to a hostile invasion, a hostile takeover. Peace through Jesus guards our hearts. It guards our minds. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. We can stand fast by meditating upon the right things, thinking about the right things. This is a way we defensively posture ourselves against the things that compromise our position, compromise us standing fast. What we think about and how we think has huge ramifications on who we are and how we act. See, our thought life, what we mentally dwell upon, can lead us to positive or negative outcomes. The the things we allow to have occupancy in our minds strongly influences us in terms of what we say, um, what we do, how we act, uh, the things that we think. So Paul is encouraging us to be on alert, to be aware of how the enemy can attack us from standing fast. Be careful what you put into your head. You see the websites you look at or the different types of media that you look at, the movies that you watch the games that you play, uh, what you listen to, whatever influences your thought life by allowing different things into your head. You be careful about those things that negatively influence you and you meditate on those things that can positively influence you. And you start camping out on those things and you focus on those good things. And verse 8 gives you that list. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate upon those things. Now think about the opposite of those things. Think about the opposite of what Paul has listed. What is the opposite of true? Untrue. Unrighteous. Misleading. Now, is that what you want to think about? What is the opposite of noble? Dishonorable. Is that what you want to meditate on? What about the opposite of just? Unjust. Biased. Immoral. Partial. Is that what we want? See, we're to meditate on justice. And how often do we fill our minds with things that aren't that? The opposite of pure. Carnal, disreputable. Should we think about that? We need to be aware of our thought life, to be on alert as we hold a posture of standing fast. What is the opposite of lovely? Intolerable. Unpleasant. So we stand fast. And then for good measure, Paul throws in, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy. He's saying, hey man, if I forgot anything, there, there. It's all included there. And Paul says, meditate on these things. Our minds are important toward following Jesus. Romans chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
What you meditate on, what you dwell upon in your head matters. And this is sound spiritual advice and it's just practical advice, really. Whatever you put in is what you're going to get out, right? You put in junk, you get junk out. It manifests in your life. And it happens physically, doesn't it? If you keep eating fast food, you're going to look like you keep eating fast food. And it doesn't just influence you on the outside, it also influences you on the inside. Not only do you not look healthy, right? Because you ate this food that's not good for you, but, but inside you feel more sluggish, don't you? Or you, you, don't, you don't feel like you have energy and, and your vital signs aren't that healthy, right? You, you take your blood pressure and it's going to be pretty high, right? And have you guys ever watched Super Size Me? Remember when he kept going to McDonald's and, and, he, and he goes to the doctor for those checkups and you saw that crazy high blood pressure? He's feeding junk, right? So junk is going to come out and maybe you don't see it in the guy exactly because you're like, oh, he looks the same. But inside, he's just sick. It's the same for us mentally and spiritually as well. The things you put in influences you, whether it's good or bad. It influences you. And some of us here may feel like Paul is just, oh man, he's just adding more stuff. I thought it was all about grace. He's just giving us this list of stuff and this kind of feels like he's just talking about more stuff and being more legalistic again. But let's look at um, the verse before in verse 7 and the verse after in verse 9. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he gives you that list, right, in verse 8. But then look at verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul has an understanding that all these things on the list are, are done by the grace of God. And, and having a relationship with God like he has. That, that's, that's what it is. He's not trying to make you do more stuff. And sure, um, Paul taught them and he modeled it for them on how to have peace with God and have God's peace with them. But it's through God's grace and it was through Paul's relationship with God that he was able to have this peace. And none of these things here that, that, that are listed in verse 8 are based on us, on, on what we earn, our desires, our works, our will. This is all from God, a God of peace who provides peace to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. See, peace is not something we create. It's something we have through Jesus. He makes it available to us. You can't have it without him. Peace is also a theme for Paul. Um, not necessarily as big as joy in Philippians, but as a whole, in all of his letters, it's a big theme. He mentions it over 40 times in all of his letters, if you, if you add up all the peace things. Why is that? Why such a big thing about peace with Paul? Well, you've got to think about Paul's background, right? He was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's his understanding of God? What's his understanding of peace? So when Paul mentions peace, this is foundational to his writing. When, see, when we mention peace, it means something different to us because of our culture, because of our upbringing, uh, because of the things that we've heard. And when we mention peace, it has some sort of a negative slant to it. We think of a conflict-free marriage, right? It's, it's a lack of tension. It's an absence of conflict. Uh, it has a negative bent to it. Or we think of the absence of war. It, it has a negative slant in that there's a lack of war. 
both negative types of ways of understanding peace. And it's a true definition, but it's, it's a different bias. It's a different way of looking at it. The Hebrew definition of peace approaches peace differently. The Hebrews define peace as the way things are supposed to be. Perfection, a completeness of life. It's, it's what we long for and, and, and not that the negative is absent, but that the blessed state that we want, it's present. It's a state of being, not the lack of a negative. And it's not a passive peace. And now what, what, what is the opposite of peace? Chaos. And if, it's interesting because if you do a word study, if uh, the antonym to logos, and we all know logos is another way to say Jesus, the antonym to that is also chaos. And Paul isn't talking about circumstances. See, we know from earlier studies of Philippians that Paul isn't phased by circumstantial things. See, those things don't bother Paul. That's not chaotic to him. And what Paul is addressing is more of a relational state of being. Who you are in the core of your being. Not the circumstances are on the outside, but who you are on the inside. And the question is, how, how is your relationship with God? How is your relationship with others? It's not so much about our circumstances. Peace with God and with others is what a perfect relationship is like. Living in peace in a, in a perfect relationship eternally with God and with others. That's peace. And keep in mind, Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. So whatever situation you find yourself in, you can find peace there. You can find joy there. Stand fast, stay united, rejoice, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Don't be anxious for anything. Pray with thanksgiving. Guard your hearts and minds by having that peace. Meditate on the good stuff. Just some of the things that Paul is reminding us to do to continue on our spiritual journey together as a church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for providing us peace. And when things seem to be out of control, especially nowadays with uh, the things are uh, with economy and uh, people losing jobs and houses and um, things happening in relationships with spouses or children, uh, we can so easily let that stuff take control of us and think that we have to act upon ourselves when when you know everything that's before you, um, that you see the bigger picture and what, what seems like this huge flood that we can't get out of, um, you're able to take us to a higher place to give us a proper perspective. And, I, and Lord, I pray for those that uh, don't know you, um, mainly for them, for them to experience peace in their life. And for those that do um, and they're struggling and they feel distressed and troubled that uh, pray God that they would pray to you because you'll take that in Jesus name. Amen.